0: Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I am absolutely blessed and honored today to get the next guest on the show. Elizabeth Yin is a principal with Hustle VC. And I hope I'm saying that right, Elizabeth. Is that your official title?
1: Actually, I'm uh, one of the general partners and a co-founder of Hustle (laughs) Fund. Okay. But that's okay.
0: (laughs) Thank you for clarifying that. And you know, you work with so many different companies. Your your focus at the firm is really interesting and unique, and you have a unique philosophy about founding and building high-growth companies. So thanks for coming on the show. Elizabeth, how did you get into this, and, you know, what's the focus of the Hustle Fund?
1: Yeah, thanks, David. So I have been an entrepreneur for a very long time, and actually I never thought about investing until much later. So with my last company which was an ad tech company, we were acquired in 2014 and then post acquisition I started doing some very light mentoring of other startups. I think honestly it was a little bit self-serving in that I wanted to give back and I also wanted to learn what else was happening out there in, you know, entrepreneurship land like there's, you know, bitcoin stuff and drone stuff that was coming up on the scene. I didn't know anything about that because I had been so heads down in my ad ad company and one thing sort of led to the next. I mean mentoring is fairly, you know, closely or loosely linked with angel investing. So I started writing a lot of angel checks and then I started getting involved with the 500 startups accelerator which was the program that we had gone through with my own startup and so I started uh, you know advising companies through that and then eventually actually ran the program uh whereas a partner at 500 startups for almost 3 years. So it, I just got more and more sucked in. And then next thing you know it, you're you're actually in VC, essentially, with, with this accelerator fund at 500 Startups. So that's how I got into it. I didn't know anything about investing before all of this, but I learned along the way. And then in 2017, I left 500 Startups to start my own fund, Hustle Fund, with two friends of mine. And uh, we can certainly talk about that. But that's how I got into this, just from being an entrepreneur.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. So it's almost you know, it's a cliche, but you're kind of following your passion as it unfolds and where where it's led you to this point, it seems like.
1: Yeah. Well, to be honest, actually, you know, after selling my ad tech company, I did a lot of soul searching. I was like, you know, I really want to give this another shot. I really love being a founder, but, you know, I realized that actually ads were not my life's work. So, I knew that the next time around, I wanted to pick the idea very carefully of what I wanted to go after and spend more time in you know, figuring out what mission was something that I was really excited about, not just for five to 10 years, but for 30 years or 40 years or however long I have left on this planet. And so that's just a really tall order to figure out what is the, the thing that you want to do for the rest of your life. And, and that was part of my journey in mentoring all these startups, like trying to understand how do other people you know, look at problems and things they're excited about, et cetera. And then, you know, after trying a bunch of different ideas myself, just very lightly and not being excited about any of them, it dawned on me that actually the mission that I was really excited about was helping startups, because it was right in front of me all along. And the problems that startups have, namely are a few things, capital, knowledge and networks. There are certainly some startups that have great access to all three of those, but most startups that I was coming across, whether it was at the 500 Startups Accelerator or elsewhere, they didn't have access to those three things. And so for us at Hustle Fund, it actually, in building out Hustle Fund, it wasn't so much, oh, Elizabeth wants to be VC, but rather the next startup that I, I wanted to found was something that helps with this. And so our first crack at this problem was actually by raising a fund. Which was our Hustle Fund one, our pre seed fund. But we have a number of business lines at Hustle Fund, including other funds that that try to attack, you know, different aspects of these three issues, capital knowledge and networks. And that is our mission at Hustle Fund, which is to really improve capital knowledge and networks for startup ecosystems everywhere.
0: Okay. So you you look at raising the fund and being involved in this as a startup. So this is your startup essentially. Okay. <laughs> It is.
1: And I know a lot of people will find that to be kind of weird. They're like, well, it's not a product and whatever. But I mean, that is the perspective that I'm coming in uh, with this because, you know, I think when you think about the problem here, like when we started Hustle Fund One, a pre-seed fund, we were investing and still are very early. And a lot of BC say they're early investors, but really, you know, they need some traction and they need stuff to be built out. We were coming in with, you know, the stage where there's two people, and they have no revenue, really, and very bare bones product, you know, and and hopefully some understanding of the problem they're trying to solve. That's the stage where we were coming in. And the reason we decided to start a fund around this is at that time, and certainly it's changed over the last few years. But at that time, there really wasn't any other fund doing this. There were some angels maybe that were playing in this, but angels kind of come and go but I could count the number of pre-seed funds on one hand at that time. Now there's a lot more, but that was a big problem. And we felt like, gosh, entrepreneurs really need to be able to get access to capital earlier than what we were seeing at the time.
0: Yeah. And so it's that's a huge risk right, for you because how do you go about deciding? I mean, this is a big question, but how do you go about deciding playing that risk? Because there's no track record really for you to look at, I guess, unless you know the people already.
1: For sure. Well, and so this is, I think to this point, this is why a lot of other investors were shying away from this stage, right? (laughs) But I had learned some things at the 500 Starts Accelerator. You know, in an accelerator, you see a lot, the good, the bad, the ugly, like we were doing Gosh, forty to fifty deals a batch, and so I was there for a handful of batches. And over two hundred companies went through my accelerator program that we invested in. So I saw a lot, and then plenty more, of course. And we did not accept. And one thing that I did notice was that, which is kind of interesting, which is there were some companies that came into the batches with very high traction, even as high as you know a, a million dollar revenue run rate, which is crazy. Like, why are they coming into an accelerator? But by the end of the batch none of those high traction companies were necessarily the ones that were either still the highest revenue generating nor were they necessarily the ones that went on to be black, blockbuster successes so there's oh. this question then of how much does revenue traction actually really matter when you're assessing companies and that was something that i had begun to think about over the years there and i think by the by the time i left i came to the conclusion that actually revenue traction doesn't really matter when it comes to assessing. Because ultimately there's still this looming risk of, you know, does the company have product market fit? And you can come up with revenue, like anybody can sell consulting services or sell one package to one customer and get revenue. That doesn't necessarily mean you can do that repeatedly in a scaled way. And so I would actually go and argue that pre-seed companies, seed companies, pre A companies, even series A companies, although, you know, obviously, there's varying levels of revenue at each of those stages, they all tend to share the same risk, which is lack of product market fit. I think eventually, when you get to maybe series B and beyond, where there's just loads of traction, you can at some point come up with a spreadsheet and say, all right, you know, based on the last quarter's data and all that, we can model out with some fair certainty how we're going to do. But prior to that, I would say all of these stages share that risk of you're not sure whether you have a repeatable sales process you're not sure if you're solving a problem you're you're not sure about a whole laundry list of things and this is where it may actually be really exciting for some of your listeners because the way that i think about things in trying to de-risk that is more from a marketing or sales lens and that is i don't care about your revenue traction but i do care a lot about you know what is the specific problem you're solving who is your audience your customer persona What are some of the learnings as you go through that journey, et cetera? And so I am taking a lot of risk, yes, but I I don't actually think it's more risk than at seed stage or pre-A or even series A. And I'm getting in at the best valuation at at pre-seed. It just feels like more risk, but it's actually not any more risky. But what I do need to figure out quickly is how to assess when there is no data Some of these other questions that I mentioned qualitatively, which is, all right, who's your customer persona? What is the problem here? Why are they buying? What's a day in the life of your buyer? That kind of thing. And that is very much how marketers or salespeople would think about things, right? When they're trying to figure out how to sell their product, it's the same questions.
0: Yes. Oh my gosh. That is so interesting. So how do you go about, and I know this is a very simplistic question, but it's, it's, how do you go about knowing if they've got the right product market fit, or at least their hypothesis is directionally correct, and you feel like, okay, this is where I'm going to place my bet.
1: Yeah. So many thoughts on this. One yeah. is, I think competition and differentiation matter a lot. Just those two things are a big thing that filters out companies in our process. Even if you are the best founders, even if you are you know, very scrappy, even if you're great at sales or whatever. Competition differentiation is huge, and I'm sure many of your listeners face this in their own lives, right? Like if you are the 2000 CRM, it's going to be really hard for your customers to figure out when they get your cold email, whether they should even spend time with you or not. They've heard all the pitches, they're being bombarded. And I think just from a marketing lens, your cost of customer acquisition tends to go up in these crowded spaces. As a small fund, that is just not something we can do, right? We are writing a small check. And by the way, our check sizes are $50,000. So we need something pretty differentiated, not only in the concept, but also the angle that you're selling into because of CAC. And so that's something that we think deeply about. And then the follow-up question is, well, how do you know if a space is competitive? I mean, that's where we have done our own marketing and continue to, to be able to see a lot of deals. So that way we know, oh gosh, there's so many, you know, I don't know, gym coaching ideas that are happening, gym coaching marketplaces or something, right, that are happening right now. Like we need to have a pulse on the landscape at this moment of like, is everybody and their mother doing this idea right now? And if so, we actually tend to shy away from that. So that's a big filter for us. I think... On the other side of things, besides market, you know there's the founder and how they're going about it. And so this is very qualitative, but when we ask questions in the interview, we ask a lot of questions about you know how they think about go to market. I don't care that they don't have any unit economics or they don't know all the answers about what their CAC is or whatever, but we need our founders to have thought fairly deeply about who their customer is, have they done their customer development in really exploring this problem and understanding the day and a life of their potential buyer what do they think is the angle into it if they tried any channels even if they don't have any revenue we need them to have done their homework and i think to be very customer oriented which many founders are not necessarily customer oriented so that's a qualitative side do we feel confident in their focus on customers
0: okay yeah and again uh, very along the lines of the listeners here who that's their whole life basically <laughs> is to try to get in the heads and figure that out so, and again, you know, if we could just encapsulate what you're saying in a nutshell, then I'd be a billionaire already, right? <laughs> and so we're already, I know this must be so difficult to be able to calculate all these little factors and and say, okay, we're going to go ahead and write a check, it seems.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think- you know, it's not rocket science. Like there's nothing quantitative about pre-seed. So a lot of it is qualitative. And I actually think, you know, even prior to my startup, I come from a marketing background, but even at my startup, you know, you, you basically either are in charge of product or in charge of customers. I was in charge of customers. So I think this may make sense to a lot of you, which is you can kind of get a sense of whether, uh, you know, a customer is, is warm or not <laughs> after a while. Like, you know, when I first started selling ads for, for my business, I was just excited that anybody would get on the phone with me. But I think as you start getting more sophisticated about is it, like, are you really trying to understand your customers and what is their process to buy? Is it just them deciding or do they have, you know, 20 people in their, you know, that they need to run this by? And I think, then if you're abstracted a layer, such as at the investor level, you're trying to get that information from the startups who are in front of you telling you about their business. And I think you know two things come to mind. One, I think founders who are very oriented towards those customers can explain all that really well. And if they can't, that's actually kind of a red flag because it means that they are not knowledgeable enough yet about customer acquisition. And then two, assuming that they can explain all that now you're abstracted a level away as an investor. Do you feel like you know, this is going to be a fast sales cycle? Do you feel like it's going to be an easy sales cycle? Things like that. And obviously, this is all very qualitative, but ultimately, investing is a comparison game. Are you going to invest in this startup or that startup? You only have enough cash to do one. Are you going to, And so all of a sudden, now, if you have a pool of 700 deals a month, which is what we see, who is the one who's going to get the check? And and so it's a bit of a stack ranking game rather than does this company hit above our bar or hit a number of points? Many companies actually, I would say do. And we probably pass on companies that will end up being successful. But what you're trying to assess is like, who of all of the startups you're seeing right now is the one you're going to pick? And so... That, in some sense, is a, not a very quantitative game at all. You're not giving people points, but there is some level of stack ranking.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, I would assume that most of the founders are technologists, really, and, and more of the engineer types. And maybe, do you ever run into like a deer in the headlights type of thing when they're talking about this because this is new? Or are they pretty sophisticated usually when they come in?
1: Oh, it really depends. So first off, actually, a lot of the founders we back are non-technical. So I think that is a bit of a shift in startups. You know, years prior, every VC would say, oh, we're only backing technical founders. But I think we're now in a world where a couple of things. One, apps are relatively easy to build. Enterprise software, relatively easy to build. Like there are just so many sort of hacks or shortcuts you can take to get even something up and running i'll give you an example a number of our founders even if they don't have an engineer on their team or they're not hiring an outsourced team or whatever they can put together a pretty good product so to speak using bubble you know they just drag and drop a whole bunch of things and it's enough to get sales and really the bigger problem that we're seeing these days is because there's just so much noise on the internet with software like you know you can look at all kinds of websites and mobile apps all day long then it's a matter of how can you rise above the noise. And so the skill set you need today as a startup is you need to be able to rise above the noise no matter what you're doing. So that's thought number one. We are seeing a lot of non-technical founders and backing them. I would probably go on a limb to say that most of the companies that we back are started by non-technical founders. It's not to say they don't have an engineering co-founder or it's not to say they don't have a an outsourced dev team or, or something or have hired engineers. But I, I think the orientation is very customer oriented these days. And, you know, for those of you who are listening, who have perhaps a sales background or something, if that comes naturally to you, I think that that's actually a, a leg up in today's world where everything is pretty crowded. The second thought is that, you know, even we do also, of course, back technical founders, a number of them, and the best ones, you know, you're building a product for a specific use case for a specific person. So ultimately, I think this is not about building the best technology, but about building the next, the best products that solve needs. And so there are a lot of great technical founders who, even if they don't have a formalized, you know, sales or marketing background, they can work with potential customers, figure out their needs, build to that and that kind of thing. And that's, that's exactly ultimately what we're looking for, no matter what you were doing before, like, we don't care what you were doing before.
0: Yeah, okay. So in, in some cases, they may have been the person experiencing that problem and trying to fix something for themselves. In in that case, but it's I'm dating myself, because I'm from the old days when it was, you know, primarily technologists, right, that would start these and the sales and marketing people would come later. <laughs> and now it's sort of I uh, got to get with the with the program here and understand this. So question for you, one of the things that really caught my eye that you put out was it says, as CEO, your three roles are ensure your company has enough cash, fundraising plus sales to operate. Hire well and keep morale high. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, and I literally have this, you know, pinned up on my wall here. How did you boil it down? Because that really is pretty much it.
1: Uh, well, a, a lot of it was, I guess, from my own founding days, and then just kind of seeing where my companies have pitfalls. I mean, morale is clearly very important, but then I think the the other two, hire well, is You know, hire well actually, I think, is the wild card for my stage where it's like, even if I back a team, even if I had all the information in the world to know that a team was fantastic, you don't know what the team will look like next year. And, And going from this team that you know is fantastic to now a team of 10 people and eight of them are mediocre, like that can change the nature of the team, you know, dramatically and so hiring well is incredibly important and that's the piece of information i don't have the piece of information that i try to assess is the founder's abilities to be great essentially individual contributors in being able to get sales done product done etc but i don't know how they are as managers i don't know how they are in assessing other people etc and that's sort of the wild card. But it is really important because I have seen it both ways. I've seen sort of somewhat mediocre founders, but then for whatever reason, having a lot of luck in being able to find a couple of key hires who then go on to hire the rest of the team who's amazing, like, and do phenomenally well. That's one path. And then the the flip side also phenomenal individual contributors who are just terrible at hiring and then just the whole thing tanks or they saturate out essentially. So Mm. So hiring well is really important. That's that's in the, the scaling. And then on the cash side, you know, I've heard mixed points on this. Like some people say, oh, you need to be really good at fundraising. Other people say, no, you need to be really good at being focused on your business. I think you can lump it all together. It's like, just make sure you can keep the lights on however you get the cash, however that may be. I've seen many different ways, especially in down markets where people get very creative about getting cash in the door. So that's that's really all all that matters to be able to do the other things hire well and keep their level of morale up on some level.
0: It's pretty much like oxygen, right? If you don't have mm-hmm. it you kind of have a hard time breathing after a while. So Yeah. Yeah, and again, easier said than done. I mean, all these factors. I I love how you boil it down to the big 3 because sometimes I think as a founder you kind of wake up in the morning and you're like, what do I do that would have the (laughs) most impact today? And then you go back to this and you go, okay, let me just make sure I focus on one of these three and we're good. So Elizabeth, your wisdom is amazing and we we don't have much time today. So I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing and make sure that if folks are out there, they're ready to take the plunge, that they know how to get in touch with you just in case they have some, you know something to discuss.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm pretty active on Twitter. My handle is <laughs> at dunkhippo 33, and people can find me there. We, we produce a lot of tactical content, uh, so it might be worth following us or our main account, Hustle Fund VC. And then you know, anybody can shoot me a cold email. I'm sure this audience is very adept at doing so. My email is Elizabeth at hustlefund.vc and i do actually try to respond to to all the emails that i see and then lastly i think if anybody's interested in actually applying for funding we actually do that all entirely through our website so just go to our website hustlefund.vc and apply there and we do actually get back to to everybody
0: oh which is true i mean it definitely appreciate you making the time to share you know your wisdom with us on the show and you know, being available to to share your wisdom with all of our audience. So Elizabeth, we'll get you back on with more time. And because I just kind of scratched the surface of all the stuff I wanted to ask you. And in any case, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Well, thank you, David.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only
1: audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our
0: show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10Bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10Bound.com.